Hello, and welcome to Game Audio Hour, episode 222, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. Uh, My name is Alex May, and I am joined here today by the magnanimous, gregarious, uh, stupendous... Mike Shapiro. How are you, Mike? Glad you didn't say rhinoceros. <laughs> um, doing great. Uh, doing doing just fine on this Friday. Although, since we're not recording live anymore, it could be any time from the perspective of our listeners. That's right. Who we appreciate. Yes. But I'm doing just, uh, just great. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. And let me tell you exactly why. Um, launching straight into our first little miniature miniature topic here. So for the past... What would it be? Three or four years. Um, uh, I've been, I've had a horrible problem here in my studio where I, I use a PC, and um, the fan noise from my PC has just been really annoying recently. Like I've just kind of over these years, I've just sort of gotten used to it. And you know, if I need to do any really, really uh, critical, sensitive listening to sound design and things like that, I'll usually just you know pop on the headphones. Um, but recently it's just been really annoying. I've just sort of been wondering if there's anything that I could do to, to quiet this thing down. Um, so I actually asked both of you for different options and you both presented some interesting options. I think the option that you suggested was actually seeing if I could get a hold of one of these kind of exo cases, you know, an external mm. case for the PC. Because yep. I think that's what you use, isn't it? That is what I have. Yeah, something like that. Where how, how does it how does it work again? Can you just describe it for me one more time? Well, let's see if this works. Um, you're listening to the absence. Uh, my my case is closed. My clay, my case is closed. Literally. Now I'm going to open it. Can you hear the difference? Uh, no. Do you hear that? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, we're going to noise reduce this episode anyway. So that was a pointless demonstration. But anyway, I have a desk, and uh, in if in lieu of the the normal two legs or four legs you'd imagine on either side of the desk there's a cabinet uh where you you know holding up supporting the desk and the cabinet opens up and inside is a reasonably soundproof chamber with two busily working fans on the inside and a filter uh and it manages and a glass door and it manages to reduce the noise significantly and I put all my hard drives in there, or at least the hard drives with spinning fans and, you know, the traditional hard drives. Uh, and it works great. But I sense you came up with a different solution. Yeah, actually, but before getting on to uh, what I ended up doing, doesn't it get sort of extremely hot inside there? Well, that's what the internal fans are for. They do an amazing job of cooling down the cabinet. And the reason I know this is because once I tried to turn them off and my computer overheated almost instantly. So they are definitely working some magic. Wow. Yeah, so what happened in my case is that for the whole time, because the fan was so loud, I assumed that it was actually my GPU. So because I do um, uh, VR development, I have a a fairly beefy NVIDIA uh, GPU inside this PC. And I assumed it was the GPU because that, you know, it's it's big and powerful. Um, So uh, I got in touch with a a, a store here in Stockholm to ask them for recommendations. And basically they said that if you need a very, very powerful, if you need something with powerful graphics performance and you need it to be quiet, there's not really too much that you can do in that situation. It's kind of an unfortunate... um, uh, you know, it's it's an unfortunate collision of two kinds of features for two kinds of PCs that that doesn't really work too well because you know the inevitable result of having a powerful GPU is that obviously it's going to need a lot of power, it's going to gen- generate a lot of heat, therefore it's going to need to be cooled very efficiently, um, and then of course on the side of doing music production where you need it to be whisper quiet, uh, then. You know, you you need to make certain sacrifices in order to have a setup that's that's specifically catering towards that. So uh, I was quite disappointed. But the guy at the store said, "Well, why don't you first try um, creating some custom fan control curves for your GPU, so that basically at certain temperatures, if I find that the GPU is only rarely getting very stressed, 
I can actually make the curves lower so that the fan speed will not be so high at the average temperatures that it's running. Huh. Um, so I did that and I downloaded uh, an app to do that. And lo and behold, I actually discovered that when I started to uh, control the GPU fans manually to try and, you know, just uh, fiddle around on the curves, I actually heard a sound that I'd never heard before. And it was the GPU fan. <laughs> I'd never heard, never actually heard the GPU fan before. And I realized from that, then I realized, well, it must be some other fan inside this PC. So I did a reboot and went to the BIOS settings and started to fiddle around with the CPU fan and immediately discovered, ah, it's the CPU fan is the one that's so noisy, not the GPU. So got back in touch with the guy at the shop and he said, well, you know, in that case, there's a lot of options. Um, if all you need to do, if the noisiest component is the CPU fan, there are, there are lots of different options for, for making that quieter. So, um, he checked up the spec of the computer that, uh, that I'm using and sure enough, the CPU fan is just the, you know, bog standard crappy Intel, um, uh, mounted fan that just sits on top of the motherboard. Um, so he said, well, why don't you try out this? insert name of amazing CPU fan here uh, product. And so this morning I went to the shop and I picked it up and came home and uh, ripped apart my uh, PC and cleaned out all the dust and insert, uh, fitted this new fan. And oh my God, it's amazing. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's like, you know, this, the thing is that this, I, I work in a room with, you know, good sound treatment and it, it sounds fantastic in here when I've got the music playing but it just means that when music is not playing you can hear everything right and you know it makes the sound of this PC CPU fan revving up and down as the CPU is constantly uh, fluctuating on its load extremely prominent and now it's I mean I still have the sound of like a very quiet sound of a fan but it's just so much better and um, as an added bonus now underneath my desk, it's somewhat breezy around my legs because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fan for this new um, uh, CPU fan is is much larger. It's much more efficient. And I set it up in a direction. So basically, it's moving in the same direction as the fans on the case. So the, all the air is just getting sucked in the front and pushed out the back by the CPU fan now as well. And um, yeah, as a result, it's it's really quiet and it's it's just fantastic. So the entire day I've actually been re-listening to a lot of my favorite tracks of music to see if it actually sounds different without the sound of this, you know, this this noise bed of of uh, pink noise in the background from this fan under my table. And are you finding that these recordings are now missing a kind of high-end sparkle that they used to have? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, this is just, just uh, something something, uh, something a little bit more dull about them now that I don't have this kind of, you know, underbed of pink noise underneath everything. So, one, of, one of my, um, uh, an orchestration trick I like with real-life human musicians is you get a suspended cymbal and maybe with really soft mallets and you just have them do a sustained roll. And it works really nicely under airy textures, you know, quiet string tremolandos and stuff like that. And it does make kind of a fan noise. It kind of makes this whoosh sound. So I think you were getting that effect just as a side effect of your hardware. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's, it's really fantastic to uh, um, have a much more quieter machine with such a simple solution though. Because I, I did look around to see if in Sweden if I could get the kind of exo case like yours and um there doesn't seem to be anybody who sells them here and then i sort of looked at seeing if i could get it delivered but obviously that you know it's basically a piece of heavy furniture so right. that's also very expensive and yeah i was getting quite sort of disappointed maybe i'd need to like underclock my gpu or or you know make a i don't know like have a mac here just for music and sound effects production and keep a pc for all the, the game development stuff and yeah, it was just a really nice surprise to have such a simple, easy solution. Well, I'm glad that that's been put to rest and with minimal expense on your end. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, before we leave gear, uh, it's worth um, just uh, having a quick check-in on some new gear that's uh, come out this week. I think this week has actually seen uh, not one but two new uh, reverb plugins 
released from uh, two different developers. One is uh, Unfiltered Audio's Tales, which was their collaboration with uh, the electronic music producer BT, uh, and that is um, released by the Plugin Alliance Group. Uh, and the other was by uh, a newer um, plugin manufacturer called Baby Audio, uh, and their product is called uh, Crystalline. Uh, have you demoed either of these? I have glanced a little bit at the uh, Plugin Alliance offering, but I haven't yet gotten the inevitable demo because I fear the inevitable temptation to use the inevitable discount code and to make the inevitable um, impulse buy, uh, <laughs> right. which for some reason tends to happen. But um, as I understand it, at least the Plugin Audio, uh, the Plugin Alliance version, uh, does some kind of transient detection in order to smoothen out the sound and give you kind of a more lush, um, more liquid sounding, uh, long sustained tail of the reverb. Does that match your understanding? Um, sort of. So actually one part of the marketing, um, the marketing put out by Plugin Alliance about this uh, Tails product is um, one part that's quite interesting, actually. They say it's the first. It's not actually the first. And I, there was another plugin that does this, but the name of it escapes me. But it's not been done in a form that is so um, uh, easy to use in this sense. But basically, it's a quite an interesting uh, technique, and it's not really designed to make things, uh, not really designed with sort of realistic reverb in mind. It's more of a... a sound design effect kind of reverb. So basically the way I understand how it works is, um, as you said, you have a transient detection. When it, when it detects a transient, it spins off another new reverb buffer with the sound that follows that transient. So it has a number of these buffers internally, and I think you can adjust the amount of them, kind of if you think of them like polyphony. And... What this enables it to do is that if you want, you know, if you have, for example, if you're playing, you know, a chord like, um, let's say, you know, C, E, and G through a reverb plugin, obviously the tail of this reverb is going to have the C, the E, and the G all mixed together into this one C major chord wash in the reverb tail, right? Hopefully. Yeah. So the way that this Tails plugin works, what it brings to the table is that in this case, what you can actually do is have it um, cut off. So if you have the C, then you play the E. When the E starts, it will actually cut off the tail of the C. And then when the G starts, it will cut off the tail of the E. So this way you can uh, keep the uh, reverb free of any dissonances that may have been sort of uh, included together in, in the reverb tail by what you played. So it's not very realistic, and it's, that's not its intention. It's more basically for, um, uh, you know, if you wanted to do, I mean, a very good application would be if you want a large reverb um, uh, and you're going to change, if you're going to do some wild chord change, which goes in a completely strange direction where if the previous chord, the notes of that, were tailing into the new chord, it would just create this mush of dissonance. Right. This is where this reverb plugin can help because you could actually set it to basically gate the, uh, the reverb buffers from the previous chord so that the new chord starts with a totally fresh set of buffers and therefore has none of the mixing together of the, the dissonant harmonies. And... Do, do you find that sounds natural, or that's probably a bad way of putting it? Do you find that that sounds unnatural, unnatural in a desirable way? Yeah. So basically, uh, sounding natural is not the intention of this. Um, and I think that if you listen to um, music by BT and you listen to this, uh, the way that, especially with voice, um, often at least what he said in the promotion stuff from Plugin Alliance. He will actually do this manually to cut off reverb tails so that he doesn't have these dissonances leaking over into the next chord. So it doesn't sound natural. It sounds artificial, but in the context of his music, 
you know, the, that level of uh, artificiality is, you know, perfectly suited from the musical texture point of view. Um, so, yeah, naturalness isn't really its intention, but I think it's more of a, uh, there are certain specific cases in music where it can just be really useful to have one plugin that has this kind of functionality built in rather than manually going through and, you know, um, I mean, in extreme situation, you'd probably just duplicate the entire track and then you would have the next chord start on a different track with a different, you know, with a, uh, a duplicate instance of the same reverb plugin on it. Right. So that you could gate down the previous chord and have the new chord start on a fresh set of reverb buffers. This just makes it easy to do that with one single track. I've occasionally run into that problem with uh, acoustic music. Uh, I find if there's a half step modulation, for some reason, that creates a very noticeable in some cases, depending on the, the dynamics of the passage before and after the key change, it can make a very noticeable clash. Um, I haven't I haven't noticed it with other kinds of abrupt modulations, but I guess the half step it gives you the maximum amount of dissonance, right? Because everything is potentially fighting against a uh, frequency that's uh, very, you know, whose overtones just don't uh, match very well. Um, so yeah, I, I think I've run into that, and I think I have resorted to some of the techniques you've described. So it might be interesting to play with that and see if that's a, a time saver. Yeah, I think time saver is the right word for it. I don't think it's designed to you know sound particularly. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be useful for all situations. It's not going to be sort of like your go-to reverb plugin uh, by any any stretch of the imagination. It's it's very spe use specific tool, um, but yeah, an interesting interesting concept and you know these days there are so many so many fantastic options for reverb across the board and at all price points with so much quality um on offer uh, so yeah it's just interesting to, to see a totally different new kind of function first approach to uh the design of a new reverb plugin and what was the second one that you alluded to yeah the second one was uh crystalline from baby audio and um Baby Audio is particularly good with social media marketing, uh, and so yeah, probably if you subscribe, if you watch any kind of music production-related content on YouTube, you've probably noticed just loads and loads of the, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, content creators on the influencers, so to speak, on YouTube, uh, applauding the the wonders and the greatness of this new plugin from Baby Audio. Um, I did actually demo it last night, uh, no, actually a few nights ago, and yeah, yeah, it, it's. I'm actually struggling to remember right now what the specific selling point of this one was, other than it being, you know, a, a new reverb on the block. It's an algorithmic reverb, uh, and a new algorithmic reverb on the block uh, from a... Uh, plug-in manufacturer who's done some very interesting creative things. Uh, yeah, yeah. It didn't do it for me, uh, to be honest. The um, It's a little bit metallic for me. Mm. Uh, even when it's uh, sort of dampened down. And I find that the modulation, which is very important, obviously, for, for creating that um, lushness, uh, the modulation is just a little bit too... Uh, I don't know. It it sounds like uh, it sounds like it's being modulated, and you, for me personally, I sort of don't want that in my <laughs> in my reverb. I don't want to hear what it's doing. I just want it to sound, you know. I mean, in my case, I, I like sort of big, epic, even artificial uh, sounding reverb is great. But um, uh, when you can hear the the modulation, you know, affecting the pitch. Of the reverb as it's going through the buffer, it's like yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a big, not such a big fan of that. So uh, um, yeah, I demoed it. I, I can't quite remember what the main selling point of it is, but I'm sure if you go to YouTube and just search for Baby Audio, you'll find plenty of uh, plenty of content creators uh, telling you all about how amazing this is and what a game changer it is. <laughs> um, but the price is very good. The price is forty nine dollars right now. Uh, and it will go up to $99 when the, this initial launch period concludes in a few, I think, at the end of the month or maybe maybe closer than that. So if you're interested, now is a good time to go and check it out. 
It's just a tough time for plugin developers, uh, audio plugin developers, because there's just so few products that haven't already been perfected. So there, it seems to be that the, what's left is either to take something that's possible and to make it easy, or just to reskin existing technology in a way that's either pretty or ambiguously portrayed as new in some way that you know you don't really <laughs> right. understand. Um, right. Which is great for the consumer because just every possible thing has been offered multiple times. So you can really uh, find a tool set that makes you happy and uh, appeals to your individual nuances as a music creator or sound design creator. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting when you look at, across the past, what has it been, I suppose, 20 years, I suppose, that um, plugins have really come to maturity that the, we've gone through these periods, right, where um, probably the first period was um, UI, I suppose, where you went from just sort of standard Mac and Windows widgets to custom-designed UI. Then after that, obviously, came emulation. Uh, for the past, you know, um, 10 years or so, it's been all about emulating analog circuitry and, you know, classic units and what could actually cost you $10,000 in hardware now costs you $100 and you can have it in software. And, you know, it's, it's all about emulating hardware. Uh, and then it seems like in the past, yeah, as you said, past maybe two years, the focus has shifted kind of very squarely onto UX now. So it's all about workflow and about sort of, uh, you know, um, getting results faster or making the interface simpler or, you know, um, uh, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think the, the perfect example of this flow is if you look at, um, Valhalla, Valhalla DSP obviously make a whole bunch of very popular, um, reverb plugins like Valhalla Room and Vintage Verb and Valhalla Plate and Supermass, Supermassive, I think it's called, mm -hmm. and Valhalla Shimmer and yep. all these different Valhalla reverbs. If you actually look at the, the progression of what, he, uh, Sean Costello is his name, the, the main developer, the progression of what he's offered through these products in chronological order, you can see exactly the same progression. Mm -hmm. It starts with UI, with Valhalla Room, and then it goes to emulation with Valhalla Vintage Verb. And then if you look at Valhalla Plate, which I think is his most recent um, reverb plugin, all of a sudden the controls are incredibly simple. <laughs> you know, it's not like bass crossover or, or you know, high-frequency multiplier. Those are the controls in Valhalla Room. In Valhalla Plate, it's just like, you know, low, high. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, a low cut, high pass. It, like, like this very, very simplistic sort of trying to make things quick and easy. Um, and, yeah, as you said, it's, it is very interesting. There's a lot of choice right now, but... I have to wonder, like, what is next? You know, if we've had emulation and we've had, you know, super efficiency and workflow, I wonder what's going to come next. I, I've told you my my grim prognostication for the future is that, which is already underway, and, and this isn't really a particularly wise prediction on my part because the evidence is around us, but when you have a product that really can't be developed any further, you know, something like a spreadsheet, you know, where all the problems are solved, uh, the tendency seems to be moving towards subscriptions because that way you don't have to do anything more. You just sit and enjoy the fruits of what you've already done. And, you know, we've we've seen that in some cases, uh, you know, proprietary subscriptions where there's no other access to something. Uh, more common is uh, you have an option to buy a plugin or subscribe to a family of plugins. And I think... I, I hate to say this because I, I hate subscriptions in most cases, uh, but I just can't see any other future outcome than the big players all going this direction and new stuff that can be purchased, well, licensed really. We don't we don't purchase software anymore, but you know, kind of licensed under a pay one chunk of money now and you've got it forever model uh, will be smaller and more agile indie developers looking to carve out a sub-market from the, the big power players. But um, I would be pleasantly surprised if the big, you know, massive offerings are still available on a pay one price upfront forever model uh, in the future. 
it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if that prediction is correct and we head in that direction where most of the larger plug-in manufacturers just basically um, are selling subscriptions. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of – I think there will still be a necessity for some kind of technological, you know, innovation or something new on the technology side in order to basically inspire people to be signing up for these subscriptions, you know, assuming that the current versions of these plugins are still functional, they'll, they'll need to have some kind of value proposition there to encourage people to sign up for the subscription beyond just, you know, you, you have to sign up if you want updates to this product. So I believe that probably still there'll need to be something that, that they're offering that they're bringing to the table technically, some kind of new angle or new direction or a new trend in uh, plug-in technology, there'd have to be something like that because otherwise, you know, if, for example, Valhalla suddenly said, okay, if you want new updates to my plugins, you're going to have to subscribe now, but nothing's changing. It's still the same thing. Uh, I, I think, you know, that, that would be a tough a tough sell for sure. Well, I think there, there are two answers. One is um, plugins need to be maintained over time, as you mentioned, passing. And I think the Waves model right now is, you know, um, they, they don't offer subscriptions per se, but you they basically do uh, sneakily by charging you for every possible update to the plugins. And the idea is I think they will eventually break as your operating system moves forward and they grow incompatible. Um, also, there's other sort of stealth. If you're not going to offer a subscription explicitly, the way to do it is to increase the frequency of discretionary updates and to come up with less and less substantial reasons for offering those updates. So, for example, um, though I do love Isotope and use their products all the time, um, the incremental updates to RX and to Ozone seem to be a lot of furniture rearranging and not ton of new functionality. Um, you know, if you look at the difference between Ozone 8 and 9, you know, they move some things around and the interface always gets a new, nice coat of paint and maybe there's some expansion of the AI features um, or they borrow something from Neutron or they give something to Neutron. But, you know, there isn't like a huge, huge update uh, or I, I don't believe there has been in a while. There are always just these little micro updates. So, it's not a subscription per se, but it sort of is, you know, in, in more frequent refreshes than are really justified. I should say more frequent paid refreshes than are really justified by the feature set. Yeah, I think um, uh, to a certain extent, all software, you know, software development, especially of larger and more complicated um, software suites, it's, it's a similar problem faced by everyone, I suppose. You know, if you look at... Um, um, programs like any of the Adobe programs or or um, uh, uh, basically any large any large high functional kind of software suite has the same kind of issues going especially how do we deal with technology how do we increase new features without bloating our software um, and then how do we encourage people to be buying a new version of it or as you said, deciding that paying signing up for a subscription is going to be something that's worth their money. So yeah, it's a tricky time to be a, a software developer in in um uh in in the audio audio tools world, I would say. On the one hand, it's amazing and there's so much capability and you know there's a the the market for uh audio tools is just growing and growing and you know the the music being produced is great and the the options for people to um uh, for getting the sound that they want faster and better, that it, it's it's a wonderful time on that regard. But on the other hand, as well, it's it's a really hard market to break into. It's a really hard market to find a good business model for, and it's certainly a really hard market to innovate in right now. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to to see what happens. Um, actually, speaking of, uh, um, here's a good segue. Are you ready? <laughs> Bring it on. Speaking of, speaking of um, exciting tools that are available to people these days, um, what's your view and what's your recommendation and what's your experience with any of these distribution services now that are able to basically uh, be a proxy for you to upload your music to streaming services like you know Spotify and Apple Music and and all the rest? Uh, what's your experience there? 
Uh, I have a limited kind of a vertical slice set of experiences when it comes to releasing albums, which is what I assume we're talking about. And I should should also point out, I feel like this is something that many of the listeners in our audience who either are releasing albums of their own work or contemplating uh, or need some kind of this album isn't is too specific, but need some kind of publishing intermediary between themselves and the big platforms like Apple Music and Spotify, because in order to establish direct relations with those entities, you have to be, I guess, large, right? Um, so my experience uh, has been fairly conservative. I have mostly used CD Baby, whose very name. Uh, speaks of its if its lineage. Um, when that, <laughs> I mean, when that, it's kind of like how Netflix, not Netflix, yeah, Netflix, right? It used to be mailing people DVDs. That was its original business model, and right, right. That's kind of been lost to memory. I mean, for a while, Netflix was synonymous with getting these little red mailers with DVDs in the physical mail. I know many of you out there mailing have faint childhood memories of this phenomenon, but it was real. I was there. So in a similar spirit, uh, I think CD Baby started out by mailing people CDs. And that was, you know, they'd offer you artwork services and of course, duplication services, which was kind of the thing. Uh, But it has transitioned to the digital era. And um, all right, so let me break down these services into two categories from our point of view. Our meaning we, the people making stuff who want to share it with the world. Uh, The two business models seem to be either A, um, we don't take any percentage of your sales. You just keep paying us something every year, like a flat fee. Uh, Or the second alternative alternative is you don't pay any kind of yearly fee. You just pay maybe an upfront initiation fee. And then we take a, a small cut off of everything you ever sell. So... CD Baby is in the second category, and I like that about them. I think the pay us every year model works well if you're going to move a lot of product, if you anticipate a lot of uh, streaming royalties or, I mean, that's it, right? That's that's kind of the, the income stream these days, uh, unless you're negotiating sync licenses. Um, so I lean more towards the... Um, Take a take a slice of everything I sell, and I don't have to pay you a subscription. Coming back to that whole I don't like subscriptions thing again. Um, so CD Baby's pluses: uh, pretty good interface, uh, very very friendly and helpful customer uh, service. Every time I've had to write to their their support people, uh, they have been quick to respond, very helpful. Uh, very friendly. I really got a sense of somebody who saw eye to eye with music creators. Uh, downside: they only accept masters when you upload your masters uh, that are 16 bits. So, wow, that's retro. That's very <laughs> that's CD, very CD. Right? Yeah. That's, that's very <laughs> that's maximally CD. Now. You may say, well, Mike, once something's gone through all the decimation and and bandwidth reduction to be streaming through Spotify or whatever, no human being can tell us the difference. And that might be true. But nonetheless, if something is going to be reduced in quality for some codec, I'd like it to start from the highest quality master possible. And also there's the question of future-proofing because maybe the streamers will up their game and suddenly having a a 24-bit master might be meaningful. So that's what I regard as kind of the the main persistent downside of CD Baby. Yeah, actually, that it, that last point you made there, if I can just interject, that last point, um, uh, CD Baby's probably going to want to do something about that because if you look at the, the recent actions of Spotify and Apple Music, Apple Music uh, was first to the, well, actually first was Tidal, on Tidal's um, uh, premium uh, I think it's called premium something, premium HD plan or something like that. Um, uh, they will actually stream to you. Uh, they were the first ones with streaming lossless 1644.1. And then re- a few months ago, actually, no, actually a bit more than that, maybe three or four months ago, maybe half a year ago, uh, Apple joined the fray with uh, streaming lossless audio. Um, and that's also, I, th- I think in the case of Apple, it's also 16-bit 44.1, I believe. Uh, and then recently, um, Spotify has been, I don't think they've done it yet. No, you can actually pay for the lossless streaming, 
But I think that there's anyway there's something that they're doing anyway that's uh, going to compete with Apple's lossless streaming um, by default. Because in in the case of Apple Apple Music, you you subscribe. There's that word again, uh, and then um, uh, they give you, you you get that premium audio quality by default. Whereas Spotify, I think the premium. Actually, I don't know. I'm not a Spotify user, so I don't actually know how it works with them. But the point being, uh, I think that yeah, across the next f- few years, probably the 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 streaming, the base level streaming audio quality, um, going up to something like 24 bit at least, if not 24 bit, and you know, 48k or or more, uh, at least 24 bit. Um, that's probably going to be something that uh, a lot of these streaming services are going to be looking into, especially if you take their movements over the past year into consideration. I think so. And as long as there are at least two major players in streaming music, I think they will be constantly looking for differentiators. And one relatively simple differentiator is offering the quality of higher fidelity audio, whether or not people can readily make the difference themselves. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. As for myself, I have experience with own uh, well three actually. Uh, there was TuneCore way back. I believe um, TuneCore is still. Uh, they're they're also one of the uh, kind of elder statesmen of this whole scene, together with CD Baby. Um, uh, that was ages ago, so I don't actually know what their service is like today. Uh, recently, though, I have used DistroKid which is um, uh, very good, very popular. Uh, and also for the Space Folk City soundtrack that we that Vince and I just released recently, that was done via SoundDrop, uh, which is also very good. Um, in both of those cases, I guess the key difference that you're looking at between them and something like CD Baby or TuneCore is that the, uh, because the whole, you know, the, the, the landscape now is fairly set in terms of streaming platforms, what they do and how they work. The interface can be des- of these two newer products that can be designed, you know, very very directly. That you they give you just the bits that you need. It's very clear that the interface has been designed with the current lay of the land as top priority. So um, yeah, very easy to use. Not great support uh, if you write to them, but. Um, uh, that's fine, I suppose, because in most cases, things work very smoothly and you, you don't really need to ever use the support. Um, but uh, yeah, so of the two, I would probably recommend SoundDrop. Just somehow the um, in the case of uh, this particular release, it was a multi-artist release because I wanted the, the listing to have both Vince and my name there. So it would say Space Folk City by, you know, uh, Alex May and Vincent Diamante, and um, in the case of uh, DistroKid, uh, I read through the docs before submitting, and uh, I mean before um, uh, signing up, and noticed that yeah, it's a bit tricky with doing that kind of multi-artist release. Whereas SoundDrop made it very very easy. You just basically write in both artist names there, and it's and that's how it goes out. So. Um, DistroKid, I believe, is the first. Uh, of the the two pricing models that you mentioned, so you pay them. Uh, they basically uh, uh, take a cut out of your revenue, and I think if you want your songs to remain on the streaming pa- platforms in perpetuity, then you pay them a monthly uh, a monthly su- sort of subscription fee. And if you stop paying them that, then um, your songs will disappear from the platform. So it's very squarely that uh, first model that you said, uh, except with the, the revenue share. Uh, and the second, uh, and SoundDrop is the second model. So you basically pay them up front and they will take a small slice out of your revenue uh, and then it's on the platforms in perpetuity. So um, uh, yeah, SoundDrop in, in the case like this where we're releasing this for a game release, re- instead of having, um, obviously the, the popularity of the game is, you know, uh, we do what we can to make sure that the tail is long, but as is the case with video games, it's it's never going to be extremely long when you're talking about a, a small indie title like ours. So being able to just pay up front 
uh, and then not have to ever worry about it again. That was uh, a really great option f uh, for us. So I'm, um, yeah, very happy with uh, the choice of SoundDrop for us. Now, there's a very interesting question, a secondary question with all these services, and that is of, and you've alluded to it, and that is of longevity and the future of your release. Um, one of the advantages to the the old timers is that they have proven themselves to be more or less permanent fixtures of digital audio distribution in as much as such a new means of delivering music can be said to have any kind of traditions. But I feel like in a decade, I'm pretty confident that CD Baby will still be around. Uh, I'm optimistic they will have changed their name <laughs> and, um, and maybe lifted, raised that 16-bit barrier a little bit. But they seem to have found a, kind of a voice and a body of satisfied customers. So the question is, if you've got a relative newcomer, like I assume SoundDrop is a relative yeah. new arrival. Yeah, they are. Um, do we feel confident they're going to be around in five years? And if not, um, what happens to your release? Um, do they, If they go out of business or they're bought out by some company that just decides not to continue the service... Do your offerings disappear from the streaming surfaces? That's a good question. I think, um, at least in the case of SoundDrop, I, if I recall correctly, in the interface, there's actually an option to transfer your music from another service. So if it's possible to transfer into SoundDrop from another service, hopefully it would mean that, in the case of SoundDrop, if they go under at some point and you, you know, there are, at that stage, there are other new players on the stage in terms of um, uh, other options for streaming services. Hopefully, if it's possible for SoundDrop to migrate uh, songs from other services into itself, then it would mean it would be possible to uh, use other tools to migrate the SoundDrop files out of SoundDrop onto onto newer platforms, kind of like um, domain hosting, right? You know, when you you can always transfer a domain right. on from one service to another. I think it's the case because I, I, I'm pretty sure I saw that feature when I was um, uh, working with SoundDrop previously. So hopefully others will then make it, it would make it possible then to, if you smell the toast burning, so to speak, <laughs> you'll be able to um, take drastic measures and sign up for somebody else and, and uh, transition your files over. I would hope so. I mean, there's there's... The stakes, I feel, are continuity, because if you've got your music out there and people have added it to playlists on Spotify, and I assume they are accumulating, I mean, I, I know they're accumulating a kind of history of plays over time, et cetera, et cetera, and who knows what kind of selection algorithms make um, visibility decisions based on the popularity of, of a given song. So if you were to start over in some way that broke that continuity, I'm speaking from a position of profound ignorance. I do not know, you know, what the data infrastructure is here. But if let's say that SoundDrop went under and um, and Sound Plummet took over their assets, um, <laughs> if you went to the Spotify page for your song or your piece of instrumental underscore, I should adjust for our audience, um, would it say you know number of plays zero, or would it inherit? the play history and all whatever whatever magic is going on behind the scenes and in the algorithms of these giant music streaming platforms. So that's that's the real question and I don't have an answer at all. So that's what makes me a little nervous about the prospect of discontinuity. Yeah, when you think about it actually sound drop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that great is it doesn't bode well for the future with a name like sound drop. I guess uh, this is the uh 2020s uh, meaning of the word drop, which of course has come to mean basically release, uh, not not the uh, prior to 2020s meaning of the word drop, which means basically to fall off. So, <laughs> yeah, sound drop maybe. Yeah, or maybe. Or, uh, sorry, yeah. I forgot what I was going to say. Please okay. <laughs> well, I forgot what I was going to say now too. So or perhaps uh, that's for the best. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's it's time for hey, it's time for a new topic. We're not going <laughs> to segue through to this one. Um, that was smooth, wasn't it? Thanks for editing, Vince. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Continuing on. Yes, continuing on. 
of course, you know we're going to leave that in there. That's that's not going to get edited out. This this is the uh, it's the organic nature of the game audio hour. You see, Alex, I have a question for you, and I'm doing this without segue. So brace yourself. Okay, jarring change of topic. I am ready. I was I was listening, or I started listening to the second um, volume of the Space Folk Space Folk City soundtrack. Okay, by yourself and uh, Vince, and the first track in that album has a musical sample that um, I feel like is known on a neurological level to anyone who was conscious and sentient in the 1980s, which we could refer to as that orchestra staff. <laughs> and I was listening to that and thinking, A, do you know the history of that particular sample? And I'm not saying that as a prompt before I relate that history, I actually don't know. And B, how does one produce that particular sound uh, this year, this this point in time? <laughs> that was a it was a great day, Mike. That day, I remember, I remember it clearly. I I was uh, um, Vince and I were sort of having our weekly catch up on how we were going, and you know, I looked at Vince down my webcam across the uh, across the ocean through to California, and Vince looked back at me here in uh, Stockholm, and I said, Vince, it's time. We have to do it. And Vince said, don't do it, Alex. Don't do it. <laughs> and I said, no, Vince, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And Vince said, just no, no, you, you can't do it. This, this, this will be a disaster. It will be a catastrophe. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yes, so I did it. And firstly, um, quick quiz. Do you know which orchestra hit sample that one is and which which uh where it comes from that specific one if you do you are absolutely amazing i mean you're amazing already but you know you're Thank you. even more amazing if you if you can pick it i want this is just grabbing at a faint hazy shadow of a memory but I, I don't know the orchestra but does the chord come from the rite of spring <laughs> well Okay, let let's 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 do, let's put it this way. It comes from obviously it comes from a period synthesizer. I didn't make it myself. Uh, I, I mean, seriously, the the orchestra hit sample. The whole reason to put it into a track like that one. Um, this was sort of a that track. The very first one is kind of a Italo disco kind of thing. Um, uh, the whole the whole point in putting it in there is specifically for that nostalgia of that era of the eighties Italo disco. So it had to come from a classic synthesizer. Uh, I couldn't make something like that myself so effectively. Um, can you guess if it's Roland or Yamaha? Well, hang on, because like obviously the source, like the ultimate acoustic source, is I assume a live orchestra, right? That's that's the idea. Okay, so I was. Um, I wasn't trying to guess, obviously, at the the instrument that brought it onto the scene. Um, I, I don't. I want to say Roland, but I'm sure that's yeah. just an active. I mean, it's I mean, fifty percent chance of getting it right, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, and also you you know me that I'm I'm somewhat of a, a Roland fanboy. So yes, it was Roland. So I have um uh I have the D110 and I have the Roland uh, JV1080. I also have an MKS-50, uh, but obviously that doesn't have it. That was pre-orchestra hit era. Um, the D110, I originally wanted to use the orchestra hit on that, but it was not quite not quite getting there in terms of that crappy sound. Uh, so the one in the song actually comes from the JV-1080. Really? Uh, which, Because yes. I had a JV-1080, and I don't recall being able to produce that. What uh, Was it one of the expansion cards? No, it's it's one of the the factory patches. Hmm. I think it's just called Orkit. Um, I am actually a, I'm not sure anymore. I, I'm I'm sure it was from the 1080 um, because I remember thinking, wow, this is because the the JV 1080 is somewhat after the era of sound that I was going for with that specific track. Right. So I can remember thinking to myself, oh, you know, this is this is uh, a bit progressive for for putting into an Italo disco track when it's a orchestra hit from a JV1080. But it just had, in, in typical Roland fashion, it's so crappy that it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> you know, like most things Roland, you know, just so crappy that it's absolutely perfect for any application. You have a specific thing <laughs> that you want. You know, Roland 
it's never going to like knock blow your socks off but you just know that it's going to be absolutely perfect for the application and that's i guess why i like rolling stuff but um I, i'm pretty sure i'm 90 95 sure that it comes from the jv1080 uh so i don't actually know like where roland originally sourced that specific orchestra hit from uh but yeah, it sounds perfect, doesn't it? Like it's, it is the quintessential orchestra hit sample from a from a you know a, a, an eighties disco like electro disco Italo disco song. I think like the earliest use that I remember, and please do not think this is scholarly or researched at all. This is uh, not any of those things. Uh, is yes, only owner of a lonely heart. Oh yeah, uh, down the bridge. And they do like That's a right. chromatic climb with that sound, which sounds even more yeah. ridiculous because an orchestra yeah. could not physically produce that. Um, but I feel like it's also just in a lot of what at the time would be called dance hits of the mid 80s. Yeah. So that one, uh, that classic track, which I know very, very well, um, my, my son is actually a big fan of Yes. Uh, and obviously, Owner, Owner of a Lonely Heart is a, is a classic. Uh, Trevor Horn at his absolute best. Trevor Horn is great. Anything by Trevor Horn, there's just so much fun, so much to listen to. You know, there's, there's just he just packs his songs full of all of this stuff. Uh, now that one in Owners of a Lonely Heart, Owner of a Lonely Heart, or is it Owners or Owner? I think it's Owner. Owner. I have to ask my son now. Anyway, um, I think that one was the emulator. You know, the very very um, early sampling platform. Uh, and I think that because the emulator at that stage was very new technology and that's why uh, um, Trevor Horn was excited about it and obviously a producer of his caliber had access to that kind of extremely expensive gear and um, uh, at the time that is. And yeah, that one I think is the emulator. So I think also the Fairlight also had an orchestra stab sample. Um, I think. I'm going to have to double check that. I'm not sure. Anyway... Yeah, probably the Rite of Spring, probably Stravinsky. <laughs> for for I would our, guess. I'm glad we finally brought that home. For our listeners um, who are not sufficiently ancient to appreciate this, um, the cool thing about sampling when it emerged, you know, digital music sampling or audio sampling applied to music when it emerged was this feeling of power where you could take a sound, you know, it was something akin to a recording, right? A kind of a blurry 12-bit recording of a sound that in reality required all kinds of resources to produce. An orchestra stab being a perfect example, right? You need like 50 to 80 people in a room acting in unison to create that sound. And all of a sudden, that was at your fingertips, literally. You know, you could play a chromatic scale up and down the keyboard and every one of those notes would trigger the sound of this orchestra. So we take this for granted today, right? It, it's trivial to have any kind of crazy audio result of touching a key. But part of the awe-inspiring power of sampling when it emerged was that disconnect between the effort it took to initiate a sound in a musical context and what that sound was. And, um, you know, yeah, it could also be like a tuned sneeze or whatever, but the the orchestra in response to touching a keyboard key is like the ultimate example of minimal effort and maximal result. That's right. So I've just looked it up. This is fantastic. I've just looked it up. I, I actually wasn't aware of this uh, this website. It's, it's called cult-sounds.com. And they have a page specifically about the orchestra hit and here we go. This is this is really interesting. Uh, it says um, the original orchestra hit sample was part of the basic library of the first sampling sequence uh, sounds of the first sequencing workstation, the Fairlight CMI, released in 1979. The sample was named Orc 2. And here we go, Mike. This is great. You were very close. And has its origin in the first chord of Stravinsky's Firebird. Ah, I knew it was Stravinsky. Yeah, this is amazing. The the um, it lists a list of notable songs that features this sample. The earliest one on this list is uh, Steve Winwood's Higher Love from 1986. <laughs> but I believe that. Owners of a Lonely Heart, I believe, predates that. But anyway, the point is that it's the Fairlight, and the Fairlight has been around since 1979. So, yeah. So, um, hence, it's a perfect fit for an Italo disco track. All right. So, I think historically, we can agree that the Game Audio Hour podcast 
does not traditionally assign homework assignments to its listeners, but I think it behoves us this time to encumber those who listen to our show with a little bit of work to get done between now and the next time you listen. Uh, assignment part one, I want you to go out and listen to this sound in the wild. I want you to listen to a song that includes it. Uh, this can be the aforementioned opening track of the soundtrack for Space Folk City Volume 2 by Alex May and Vincent DiMonte. But I would also encourage you to find it used in, well, I can't say a non-ironic context because really it's, it was ironic to begin with, but go find something from the prior century, you know, one of the or the first wave of usage. Um, you can find it on that website. You can find the Yes song. Go listen to it and experience it and understand the role that this sample had uh, in pop music history and just internalize that. Make it part of your musical vocabulary. I think you'll be doing yourself a service. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, there's, there's a whole... I'm just looking across this list of, of uh, notable songs that have in included uh, this orchestra hit sample. There's a lot of them. And... Uh, I'll just, I guess I should, if I named off a few of them, then 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 our uh, listeners wouldn't have any challenge in their homework, would they? Right. So they maybe I to, shouldn't. They have to do the Googling themselves. So let's <laughs> right. leave that as an exercise. Right. Okay. So um, uh, moving along, um, uh, let's just, uh, we, of course, we, um, well, we're actually almost up to an hour, but uh, before we um, finish up, we also do have to make mention of GDC which was uh, last week, uh, as we're recording this. It was actually it concluded last week. Did you go, Mike? No, neither of us went. So this should be a very interesting discussion. <laughs> That's right. Vince was there, um, uh, and I think he reported that it was, uh, it was a good event. Uh, very nice, of course, to be uh, amongst people and you know, meeting uh, people from around the world and game developers and peop uh, you know, colleagues and peers in our industry, which is nice. Um, uh, are you interested in going to GDC next year, especially considering the, you know, I mean, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? It is a large gathering of people. And um, uh, over the past two years, of course, we've all gotten quite used to feeling very apprehensive about large gatherings of people for uh, for obvious um, coronavirus-related reasons. But uh, are, you, are you thinking to go next year? Uh Assuming that the public health situation permits, uh, I would definitely like to return. This year, I was a little bit jittery, even though in the United States, COVID is fairly uh, subdued compared to its its levels in prior months. But it is an awfully large, dense gathering of people. And uh, I was just, I wanted to err on the side of precaution this year. But uh, next year, I feel like if, if all is looking um, promising on the not having a pandemic front, I would be really happy to go back because I've had many good times, um, not the least of which was the uh, first live Game Audio Hour event. That's right. You know what? I actually, last week, I actually went back to that episode to watch it because <laughs> I was thinking, oh, yeah, I remember that was a great time when I was there and um, we had Matt Pearsall and you and uh, Vince and... Uh, obviously, Kyle, of course, um, and uh, yeah, that was a that was a great time. As those episode, that episode was uh, was quite fun, wasn't it? I remember we were packed into the lobby of a hotel, the Good Hotel, which was my hotel at the time. Yeah, and we were we basically took over a large chunk of real estate there. Right, right. Yeah, um, I wonder if the uh, um, game audio community had any meetups at the Carousel this year at GDC. Yeah, no, no idea. Um, this would have been a great question for the one person on our show who actually went this year, but uh, maybe we can we can bring it back next week and yeah. uh, get Vince's uh, post facto rundown. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So um, we've come to the end, but before uh, finishing, we of course have to uh, do our regular conspicuous consumption, uh, which is where we basically ask each other what kinds of exciting new games, music, movies, literature. Uh, exciting artistic experiences that we've had recently or things that we're into or new discoveries. Uh, so, Mike, I guess uh, you want to kick it off with uh, anything interesting that you've been watching, listening, reading, experiencing, eating? Uh, let's see. Here are a couple of items. Yeah, nothing nothing really interesting on the eating front okay. or smelling. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll 
toss of a few items. As mentioned, I've been enjoying the uh, second volume of the Space Folk City uh, OST. Uh, recommended as a synthy good time for our uh, listeners. Um, you know, I never thought I'd say these words in my life again, but I just listened to the new Pink Floyd song. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, um, it, it definitely sounds like a Pink Floyd song, uh, except that the lyrics are in Ukrainian. And uh, anyone curious can go look that one up. I just, I mean, literally last night, um, bit the bullet and downloaded uh, Elden Ring, um, which I, I look forward to screaming at in frustration. And um, maybe more on that next week. Um, and uh, book-wise, I uh, just opened the, the first digital chapter of uh, Project Hail Mary, which is a science fiction book that I feel like anyone kind of in the the, the game player, game developer, audio tech, cultural sphere would would really like. It's a really cool, very accessible, uh, down to earth uh, sci fi novel with a surprising amount of science. Uh, that is what I've got. How about you? Well, I've uh, just concluded playing um, a space combat sim called Chorus. Um, I did not get to the end. It was it was just getting sort of too ridiculously difficult. Um, uh, but uh, very good, very good. The sound design and the music, extremely good. Like wow, <laughs> yeah. It's it, it's funny when you you know in our profession, obviously, we're listening to when we listen to games, we're listening to them on on many different levels. Um, you know, you'll be listening to the mix, you'll be listening to sound design, you'll be listening to music, and of course you'll be listening to uh, the musical implementation and how the music is changing and, you know, whether or not it sounds uh, repetitive or, or, you know, how seamless it fits in with, seamlessly it fits in with what's happening on the, uh, for the player. Um, across the board, the, the sound for chorus is exceptionally good. Uh, the music is fantastic. The... Um, implementation is really good like extremely impressive just really seamless um one of the things that i uh, noticed just the attention to detail which was very impressive you know in some open world games uh when you have dialogue that's playing and you walk into a trigger area where it will be it's supposed to trigger you know some kind of new dialogue based on that area that you've just walked into Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be different approaches in that situation and some games will cut off. You know, if you have sort of dialogue that's used for just open world areas where the player's just wandering around and then they walk into this this sort of uh, scripted sequence trigger zone, it will cut off the the kind of random... Uh, Ambient, yeah. Inc- ...incidental dialogue so that it can start the the sequenced scripted um, dialogue for this trigger area, right? Uh, so many times in chorus that happens, but it doesn't cut off. It actually lets the incidental dialogue play out first, and then it starts the the dialogue for the, the trigger area that you've entered. And little things like that, it's like, wow, that's really cool. That's great. You know, the little small details like that. Um Mixing was excellent. Sound design was very creative. Uh, it's it's nice, really, when you um, when you find something like this. It's just so seamless and perfectly done. And it, there's never a moment when you think, "Oh, that that sounds kind of off," or "That sounds too loud," or "Gee, the music is getting repetitive now," or you know, "Well, that's a very derivative, cliched sound." Or it, it, there was no moments like that. It was just really smoothly done across the board. So yeah, if you're um, uh, curious, uh, if you are not into space combat simulators, and um, uh, uh, or you're not into, not really particularly um, uh, enticed by the game itself, go check out like a a, a playthrough video uh, on YouTube, uh, like without any commentary, uh, because that's also you can you can hear a lot of this music, the the sound implementation through something like that too, just as something to watch. Uh, so yeah, very impressive, and. Then uh, my current album of the week and musical obsession from the from the past few days since I discovered it uh, is a uh, it's an album from 2021 
by a Danish-Swedish progressive metal group called Vola, V-O-L-A, uh, and the album is called Witness, and it's uh, it's blowing my pants off. I'm not wearing any pants right now because they're lost. All my pants have been lost every day I put it on. My pants get blown off, and I have run out of pants because this album is really, really fantastic. And I've said it before, you know, progressive metal is an extremely fascinating uh, sort of subgenre of metal, essentially. But I mean, it, the there's so much flexibility with what they can do in terms of, you know, aggression, but also beauty uh, and... Um, the, the textures and the timbres are there's a lot of versatility there inside you know what you could call progressive metal music and of course as usual for this style of music the the level of virtuosity uh in the playing and the singing is you know off the charts it's just amazing so yeah if you're interested in um hearing uh, a really fantastic example of the breadth of what we call progressive metal music definitely check out uh, the 2021 release Witness from Vola, V-O-L-A. Very cool. And and what was the game you were alluding to earlier with the excellent sound design and mixing? Chorus. Chorus. Spelt yeah. like a group of people singing. That's right. The logo actually spells has chorus with the U as a V, like the, the old Roman way right. of doing it. But yeah, it's chorus. Roman choruses did yeah. use that spelling. So that's a nice time. That's right. And I think Roman choruses also had excellent uh, audio implementation as well. They did very natural acoustics. Yes, very seamless transitions. <laughs> they always finished their dialogue. That's right. Yes. So uh, anyway, this brings us to the end of episode 222. Uh, and uh, it's been... Fantastic and good fun. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, this was a blast. I'm surprised we got so much mileage out of the discussion of that orchestra stab sample, but I'm pleased that we <laughs> That's did. Right. That's right. Um, if you are interested in uh, hearing more from the Game Audio Hour, please uh, follow us on Twitter at Game Audio Hour, which is where we, uh, uh, which is where we most frequently update uh, updates for our release schedule. Um, please also, if you would, uh, if you have things that you are curious to hear us talk about or questions or comments on the show, please also, uh, direct those to us via Twitter. Uh, and our next release will be going up onto all of the uh, major podcast platforms. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we make announcements on Twitter when we do that. So keep an eye out there. So this has been episode 222. Uh, I'm Alex May, and uh, thank you again, Mike, and we will see you all next time. Till next time. Actually, we're not going to see anybody next time, are we? I guess we'll... Right. <laughs> They'll hear us yeah. unilaterally, and that's it. That's right. Goodbye. Bye.